The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Label Wolf now presents his lecture, Overcoming Anger and Angry People. Anger, something which we recognize quite easily, but find it extremely difficult to define and even more difficult to control. My thesis this evening will be to quote Maimonides, who says that anger is absolutely prohibited as an expression for all peoples. Now that's a very, very bold and bald statement, but I'm going to show you that it's within reach of each one of us. Firstly, to be able to define it means to be able to define emotion. And to define emotion is itself a tall task. Is anyone in the room brave enough to share with me what is emotion? It's a feeling, but the word feeling is surely a synonym. I'll have to ask you then what a feeling is. Well, there we are. How can we possibly control anger if we don't even know what a feeling is? Which makes it awfully difficult. It makes it also difficult to develop a training program to eliminate it from our personality makeup. So during the course of the presentation, I'm going to try to give you pragmatics as to what emotion is and to distinguish it from mind. Because inevitably, when I ask people, what is emotion, I get deathly silence before the synonyms come, and then we get no further. So let me just spend five seconds of silence so you can, in your own mind, determine what is anger and not necessarily share it with me. So let's evolve it in this way. What does anger look like? Could someone tell me any words to help me with this question? What does anger look like? Violence. Again? Violence. Yes, violence. Any other words come to mind? More? Louder? More? Loud? More? Okay. I came up with a few also, as you can see on screen. Some of them you've mentioned. Loud, threatening, accusative, disempowering, overpowering, ugly, distorted, unbalanced, loony, selfish, and I'm sure you can add to that list quite considerably. So we've got some description of what it looks like without yet knowing what it actually is. Now, I know it's an emotion, but you can't help me with what an emotion is, so I'm still left in the dark. So let's go a step further. When do people become angry? Anybody? When do people, not you, because you never do, but when do other people become angry? When they're disappointed? Disagreement? They don't get their own way. 
More? Right, so you all have a sense of when people become angry. And you've got the possibilities, which I'm going to share with you also. And they're ones that you have mentioned perhaps in passing. When we're provoked, dismissed, not recognized, blocked, deprived, deflated, not obeyed, conflicted, cheated, put down, plus the many others. What's the common denominator? Have a good look at that list and the words that you offered and see if you can reduce it to a common denominator. Ego. Not validated. That may be a circumstance. Understood. But I think you got it right when you said ego. Because the common denominator is the word ego. But the word ego is used in so many different ways. There's the Freudian use of the term. There's the more conventional use of the term. We're going to simplify it, and we're going to define ego as me-centered, when it's all about me. So, what's wrong with about me? Don't I have to look after myself? Don't I have to feed myself? Don't I have to clothe myself? What's wrong with looking after me? What's so wrong with being ego-centered? Is there a difference when we, of innuendo when we use the word ego as opposed to the kind of words and descriptions I just used? Is it a matter of balance? I'm raising some rhetorical questions here for you. All right, let's make it a little more difficult. What about getting angry at injustice? Is that not legitimate? Absolutely. Therefore, my initial thesis, which quoted from Rambam, which I'll show you shortly, seems to have a fallacy. One should get angry under certain circumstances, no? And there's the classic example the gentleman says, Moshe Rabbeinu breaks the tablets. Would you like to ask a better question than that, than Moshe Rabbeinu? Go one step up. Not yet. What can be possibly higher than Moshe Rabbeinu? Does God ever get angry? There you go. Here we are. We may as well close the session and say it was incorrectly thesis, then we can go home. So we're going to come to that. I'm going to explain that and show you that even then, anger is prohibited. And I'm going to show you that God never got angry, despite the English translation of the Bible as we read it. But let's get there. Let's first ask ourselves the question, what is anger? So, when we say what anger is, it's not difficult. Anger is an attempt to control or dominate the other or the environment in order to alleviate one's own fears and insecurities. Read that closely. Read it again. And as you see implicitly there, it's still all about me. It's about my wish to control. It's about my insecurities. Once again, it's me-centered. Can you think of any circumstances other than the one of seemingly 
injustice in society. Put that aside. I will respond to that. Are there any circumstances that fall outside of the ambit of this definition? Any case that you can think of? Gentlemen in the back. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely correct. The only problem is, I hear you, I hear you. But when you use the terms personal upset, surely there's many, many other instances of personal upset other than anger. And therefore you'd have to speak about a whole range, maybe many dozens of instances, and analyse them each in their own setting. Your second point, that it may be productive, Let's pause on that, whether it's productive or not. I'll come back to the term righteous indignation in the face of community injustice. And might it not be very productive, as the gentleman says, to get angry about that? I'm going to say no, but I raise it at this point. Okay? Just to prove you that I'm not making this up, may I quote you what Rambam says in Chilchus Deus? Maimonides is very clear on this. Anger is an exceedingly bad passion. One should avoid it to the last extreme. One should train oneself not to be angry even for something which might justify anger. If he wishes to arouse fear in his children, he should make a show of anger. But in reality, his mind must be composed like someone who merely simulates it. The sage is therefore charged that anger should be avoided to such a degree that one should train oneself to be unmoved even by things that would naturally provoke. It goes on and on. But it seemed to be fairly straightforward. Do you see an exclusion clause there, though? Does Maimonides provide a little way out in his definition and his instruction? It's clear he says that anger is not permitted. So, Label Wolf, you're on safe ground. However, what does he say about the possibility of a show of anger? And he uses the word simulation, simulates it. What's the difference between a simulation and reality? Simulation is acting. Okay. And not even the Strasbourg School of Acting. It means putting it on. You're not really there. In other words, it can be used, he says, as a tactic. But elsewhere he cautions you that you cannot even simulate it unless, and listen to these, unless you're completely Calm and pacific within. Have you ever seen a person genuinely angry and calm and pacific within at the same time? No. Why? Because what you're seeing is true anger, not a simulation. So let's set aside Rambam's simulation notion, and I strongly advise you, whether it's in the area of parenting or in community, not to try to simulate it. And the reason is not because I in some way uh, feel you inadequate to the task, but rather we're living in a world of anger currently, and even the simulation of anger can be read incorrectly.
So I recommend we follow the direction that I'm advising. No anger, even show of anger, under any circumstances. Going back to the point, what about criminal injustice? Should you not get angry about it? And the short answer is absolutely not. Should you do something about it? Of course you should. Doesn't a good soccer coach or football coach instruct his or her players, never get angry in the middle of the game. If you get angry, you'll lose it. Your capacity for strategic thinking becomes warped. Every soldier in David HaMelech's army was taught never to get angry in the heat of battle. It affects your efficacy as a soldier. Likewise, in your capacity to assist someone in trouble. If you see criminal injustice taking place, you see someone being hurt, of course you must enter into the fray, but not because of anger. That's a very poor mindset to strategically be successful. You have to be cool, didactic, and under those circumstances, you have an optimal capacity to be able to overcome. You see what I mean about not getting angry, even for things which appear to be an injustice? Okay, having said that, let's now go back to early definitions, because I can't possibly share with you methodology of undoing anger, or as I'll be saying, not to get angry in the first place, without understanding what we're talking about. So, have a look at the Hebrew words for the word anger. And you'll find there's lots of words. And one that came to mind after I did this PowerPoint is another word, rogez, which I could add to that list. And how come all these words get translated in English in the word anger? obviously not possible, or English doesn't capture the nuances that Hebrew does. Each one of these words means a different shade of emotion, which in our psychology of anger in contemporary world, this is not able to focus on. In fact, let me come back to the question about God getting angry. What word is used invariably in the Chumash for a description of God's anger, so-called? Anyone? Charon af. What is the literal translation of Charon af? Answer, flaring of nostrils. And you'll say, okay, that's a nice prose-like poetic format of the same thing. No, it's not. It's very deliberate. Flaring of nostrils means an external facial impression. That's where Rambam's simulation comes into the picture. It's a put-on. It's a pretense for effect. The word in Hebrew which corresponds to the English of anger is ka'as. 
You will never find the word ka'as vis-a-vis God anywhere in the Chumash, except once in Ha'azinu, where it's used poetically. In other words, God never gets angry. Each instant is really an example of a cool, calculated consequence. And as the Rebbe often says over and over again, and we learn in the Maimorim, all these consequences, even the horrific curses that we read not long ago, ultimately, beneath them is the highest good. And I'm not going to go now into the philosophical discussion and the Hasidic and Kabbalistic understanding of how good can underlie something which is ostensibly on the surface seem bad. But no, God never gets angry. So Maimonides still is in good hands. Having said that, let's go back to that discussion of what is an emotion and what is anger. Is it an expression of mind or emotion? Any votes? Emotion. Because very often when I ask for definitions, as I did earlier in the piece, people start to think in terms of mind. Anger begins in the mind. Doesn't it? Is it possible for you to feel anger without the mind interpreting it? Don't you have a mindset to a circumstance which causes an emotion? Do you not use your head and then feelings flow? That's a very, very important point. Are we going to raise that? In fact, it's a composite of both. But the sequence is mind first and emotions second. Hence the wonderful teaching, which is often quoted in Sefer Tanya, Moyach Shalit Al-Halev. What does that mean? The mind determines the outcomes of emotions. The mind determines the outcomes of emotions. Mind comes first. Emotions follow. This is a very important axiom. Now, I know that some people will say, but that's not always the case. Sometimes I get emotionally upset even before I begin interpreting the circumstance. The answer is, it's impossible. What you're really saying is, the mind was so quick, microsecond, that I wasn't even conscious of my mind profile before it jumped into the consequent emotions. Because how can you feel something without visualizing and interpreting? And if not visualizing, then sensing and interpreting. There must be an interpretation. That is terribly important for the way that we're going to conduct training. Because now we have something to hang our hat on. We have a peg, mind. Mind is something you have more control over than emotions. So let's be able to focus on mind and see how we do that. Now it's, it's possible for me to give you a working definition. Mind is the way that the neshama flows through the physiology of the brain. 
The brain is machinery, biological machinery, complex machinery, amazing machinery, but still machinery. There's nothing mystical about brain. There's nothing essentially spiritual about brain other than everything is spiritual. However, when the energy of the neshama is able to vibrate, flow, whatever verb you wish, through it, the result is a phenomenon that you experience and I experience, and we call that seichel, mind. Mind is our experience of the neshama flowing through the brain. Emotion is the experience of the same energy flow, the neshama flowing through the heart. In other words, what we have is two different pathways of consciousness. Another word that's so misunderstood in Western terminology, the word consciousness and subconsciousness is bandied around freely without any definition. Consciousness is the total experience of the neshama operating through every aspect of the body. That total experience through the feet, through the hands, through the heart, through the mind, simultaneously, is this moment of consciousness. Specific consciousness is mind consciousness or emotion consciousness. They're different pathways, separate pathways. This is something that, again, in the West is not understood, that Hasidus brings out. That the neshama has different vehicles for its expression, and each leaves an experiential effect on the human being. Therefore, there's a very easy way to change your emotions, to change your feelings. And that is simply to change your mind. If you change your mind, you have to change your feelings. The contemporary word for that is called reframing, the skill of reframing. You know, you see a beautiful painting, and you buy it. And what's the next step after you buy it? What's the right frame for it? And you know full well that a frame can either lift the beauty of the portrait, or the wrong frame can completely hide it. When we reframe, it means we reread the data, the information. To be able to reframe positively is the skill we're talking about here. Anger is always a negative frame. We have to learn the skill of reframing positively. Okay, I'm going to give you three steps. And if all you heard tonight was the next three steps, you could walk away and never be angry again. And guess what? It's not even complex. It's very simple to understand. Admittedly, a little more difficult to practice and put into effect. But you know full well from your readings on habit formation that habit formation is a matter of repetition. Now we have in our brain 
pathways. Let's use that metaphor. The pathways. The pathways of the brain I'm referring to is your habitual thinking process. When she says that, I immediately see red. When he does that, I immediately go bananas. Why? Because you've done it 100,000 times and therefore it's inevitable. To be able to break the habit, to be able to change the neural transfer within the brain between two nerve end fibers, to be able to change the pathway, to unhabituate. How can you unhabituate a habit? If a habit means that that pathway is set in stone in your brain, the only way to unhabituate it is to create a different pathway. In other words, you have to consciously and deliberately reinterpret that same phenomenon differently over and over and over again. We haven't got time in the space of an hour to practice that. One practices that meditatively in a focused manner. I'll speak about that more tomorrow morning when I speak about mindfulness. But let's put it into words, the methodology. Step one is fairly simple. Become aware of anger arising within you. Sounds simple? That's a half-day workshop. Just to get that one right. Because mostly, by the time that you are aware, you've already moved well beyond that and already acted on it and spoken on it and your facial distortions have revealed it and you've gone well past the awareness stage into activity stage. So how do you slow that down? How do you create awareness? You have to start to become aware of the way that your body responds. Do your fists tighten? Does your stomach become, become knotted? Do your eyes become beady? Does your forehead become furrowed? And you start to recognize these things, slow them down, read them in yourself, and begin slowly to undo these features. Because these features are your only guideline. So that step one might appear to be very simple, but the truth of the matter is, it takes a bit of training to be able to become aware of that and not lose that moment by going too fast forward. Okay, so you've done the half-day workshop with me. You're now very, very conscious and aware of yourself becoming angry at certain instances of seeming provocation. What's step two? So let's have a look at step two. Step two in reframing is to ask a question to yourself. And the question is as follows. What is it that's causing the other person to say or do what they're saying or doing? That's it. You have to ask yourself that question quite deliberately. What is it that's causing the other person to say or do what they're saying or doing? And don't try to answer it, because you can't. You never know what's going on in the other person's mind and heart. You're not standing in their shoes. So the purpose is not to get an answer. The purpose is just to ask the question.
But what's the secret in this question? Have a look how it's worded. The wording is other. You're starting to empathize with the other, the provocateur. When you empathize with the other, you can no longer focus on yourself. The ego has to subside. The me starts to become an aberration. And since Hashem created us in such a way that you can't think of two thoughts at the same time, that's a wonderful asset. It means when you ask this question, you can't be focused on yourself. It's the asking of the question that creates other-centeredness in the place of ego-centeredness. What does that do? It immediately disengages anger. Since anger is me-centeredness, and I'm moving to other-centeredness, immediately anger stops. Now, admittedly, if you stop, then what will happen is it can come back. Hence, step three, the final step. Stay focused on the question with your full inquiring mind. To stay focused is not easy. People today find it difficult to stay focused. We're using a lot of terminology like ADD and ADHD and lots of other things. But for the vast majority of people, we have the capacity to focus. It's just that we're lazy to practice it. Stay focused on that question. The longer you stay focused on that question, the more you disengage. The more you repeat this today, tomorrow, next week, onwards and onwards, the more you're habituating yourself to changing the frame. You're reframing, you're interpreting, you're in a position of empathy, you're in a position of even possibly compassion. In those settings, it's impossible for anger to thrive. So I'm advising you that you have those three steps at your disposal. How long does it take to practice and succeed? I'd say a couple of months. You say, wow, a couple of months? That's long. In the space of a lifetime of 120 years, it's not long at all. And you can help someone else learn and practice it. And it's not hard. So have a look. We began with the proposition that anger is wrong under all circumstances. Now, I know that not everybody in the space of now 35 minutes is convinced by that statement, but I think you're going to find difficulty in arguing against it, against the way that I've put it. Why do people find it so difficult to accept the proposition that anger is wrong? It's as if people, when I say anger is forbidden, it's as if people say, this is my most treasured commodity. How dare you label, take away my freedom to be angry. If I want to be angry, I'll be angry. Who are you to tell me not to? Why are we so possessive about something that's so hurtful, ugly, negative, and all the things that you told me in the list of what does anger look like? Just admit to yourself at this moment, anger is ugly. 
Yes, I know I find it sometimes in myself, in my loved ones and others. Well, guess what? I'm going to do something about it. It's an avera. It's a sin. You know what the word sin, S-I-N, means? Self-inflicted nonsense, right? Remember that. Okay, so this is one approach. I'm now going to give you a totally different approach, unrelated to this systematic setting that I've set out so far. These three steps are paramount. I can tell you that I have helped people follow these three simple steps and has completely transformed relationships and very often spousal relationships. But there is another way of approaching the subject matter. And that is the strategy of amuna and bitochon. What do these words mean? Amuna is usually translated as faith. And bitochon is usually translated as trust. But they're big words. What does faith mean? What does trust mean? We can spend endless hours comparing notes on that. So let me give you the definition that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave. And he said quite simply, not in those very words, I've summarized it. Amuna is the belief that anything that has ever happened to you is for your current good. Okay? Whatever's ever happened to you is for your current good, even if it was, God forbid, painful, hurtful, loss. What's bitachon? Bitachon is the belief that the challenge you face now will have a positive outcome. Again, the challenge you have now will have a positive outcome. What's the difference between the two? Amuna deals from the past to the present. Whatever's ever happened to you is for your current good. Bitochon deals from the present to the future. The challenge you face now will have a positive outcome. These are two axiomatic propositions, which means they're bedrock. I cannot prove them, but neither can you disprove them. But what I can say to you is that if you adopt a life philosophy based on these two axioms, you will never get angry. Because at all times you're realizing that underneath the circumstance of now is going to be both a positive outcome and it's for the good. Of course, I put this second in my presentation because this is a little harder. To be able to be conscious and aware and mindful at all times. And that's not an easy thing to do. However, it's not all that difficult either. Just have to make a decision, be determined, be committed, and it's absolutely wonderful. And I assure you that if you adopt these two propositions in your life, then you can't be angry. You can be inquisitive, you can be curious, 
You may not have answers. Who has answers to all things? Nobody. As someone once said, and Rabbi Josh Gordon, who I admire a lot, Allah Shalom, says often, would you want to believe in a God that you can understand? So you have to be able to accept that this is what I want to achieve in life and have that commitment to it and then do the hard yards of practicing, practicing, practicing. What does Amunah and Bitochen do to anger? It creates an atmosphere which makes it impossible for anger to thrive. That's the most I can say about it. In other words, your whole life setting is transformed. It's also a form of reframing. But it's not reframing the moment, it's reframing your life. That's a big one. Let me put into context and summary some of the things that I've said. And I'm going to present a diagram and I want you to observe the dynamics of the diagram as it appears. What you have here is a vertical axis. The vertical axis divides off before and after AM and PM. Now you have a horizontal axis. The horizontal axis divides emotions from mind. Emotions seem to come first. People who are not aware will tend to emote without seemingly using their mind. And once they emote and it becomes strong, those emotions capture the mind. When we talk about capturing the mind, the English word is rationalization. Meaning, yeah, he yelled at me. Why shouldn't I have yelled back? Oh, you're giving yourself a good reason. You're rationalizing. That person is horrible. You're rationalizing. How dare my child be so chutzpahdik to me? It's correct of me to put him or her down. You're rationalizing. The emotions came over so strong, so quickly, that it didn't give a moment for a peek in of the mind. The mind was there sufficient to say, hey, you're being provoked. Now, defend yourself. Therefore, to be able to become a person who goes through growth, development, self-change, you have to move from quadrant two to quadrant three. And therein lies the secret of change, from quadrant two to quadrant three. What does that mean? Just observe. You reinterpret. In the middle, you catch yourself. You catch yourself becoming aware that anger is arising. And you reinterpret. I don't know what's going on in that person. Maybe they had a bad breakfast. Maybe they got hurt. Maybe something else. And the result is your feelings transform into empathy and compassion and what we said earlier. So what comes first is usually feelings come first and it rationalizes the mind. What I would like us all to do is to move from two to three. And when we move from two to three, it reframes, reinterprets. I think that's what is commonly called emotional intelligence. 
except I put a Hasidic spin on it. And when I read Daniel Goleman's book, it seemed to me that he was talking in part something quite similar. But of course, he derives from more Buddhist premises, which are quite foreign to our teachings. So what we're seeing in this particular model is the reality where people initially fail, which means, yeah, the emotions get the better of you. That's why I put that in quadrant one. Once you become masterful, because you've practiced, you don't need to have quadrant one. You move straight into quadrant three. Straight into reframe, reinterpretation. And immediately it's moyach shalit al-halev, and immediately appropriate feelings flow, appropriate feelings being always positive feelings. All right, I said I promised I would leave you with a bit of time to vent at me. So this is your opportunity. If I've upset people, now get it out of your system. By the way, venting does you absolutely no good. <laughs> venting, by the way, reinforces the same pattern that has existed in the mind. I know that there was a whole generation of psychologists who claimed it's important to get it out of your system and vent it unless, or it'll cause you untold damage within. They've been proven absolutely wrong. We know full well now, seeing on screen, visibly, what's happening in the dynamics of the brain, something that Dr. Newberg, I think, may be speaking about tomorrow as well that what we do by venting is simply rehearsing and reinforcing what is there and therefore making it much harder for us to break our anger pattern. But let's make an exception. Go ahead and vent. Gentlemen in the front and gentlemen in the back, thank you. Are you, you trying to reframe what is traditionally be called fight or flight? That our first reaction would be... The gentleman asked, am I really... Um, speaking in terms of fight or flight, which is a terminology that's used a lot in the uh, uh, um, uh, secular world. My approach is very, very much never to try to force Judaism into a secular box. If there's something that's secular that works, I'll force it into a Jewish box. That's fine. But I find all too often we think so well of ourselves, we say, wow, you know what? This little bit of Judaism, it's out there in science. How great is science? And we forget about the Judaism part. I look at the world through Jewish eyes, and if somewhere out there they get it right, I say, yeah, of course they got it right. We've taught it. But the point, what is fight or flight? It's not specific in this discussion. It's more in terms of chesed and gevura and ahava and yira and our tendency towards connect and the circumstances under which we disconnect. So it is slightly a different discussion, not exactly what I'm saying here, but that phenomenon nevertheless is a correct phenomenon as a concept. Yes, sir. Hey. Uh, if, as you presented, the anger is forbidden... I didn't, Rambam did. No, no, it's presented, <laughs> right? So, but the same way it's so... Uh, um, the pathway that you mentioned, it's so general, applies to so many people. Yes. There should be a positive uh, reason for that, that uh, it was developed during this long time, 
and the pathway works for most of the people living. The, no, I the, don't think it works at all. I think it hurts and destroys people. I think it hurts and destroys relationship. I think the long-term result of anger, the one thing we've learned from history, although we never learn anything from history, but the one thing we may have learned from history is that anger is the basis of disconnection. Anger is the basis of removal from. It causes absolutely no uh, concrete manner of reconciliation. In fact, when I get two people who are talking in a context of marriage and they're talking about being angry with each other and they demonstrate the anger, I know there's a whole world of trouble that I have to deal with. Anger under no circumstances helps. And no, it hasn't evolved in history. Human nature is the same. From Adam Harishon, well, maybe not Adam Harishon, but yes, Cain and Havel, we have been the same. It's not the model of caveman evolving into sophisticated modern person. We practiced murder from the word go, and today we murder much more effectively because we've got the equipment and the machinery to murder more people at the one time. But our nature has not changed one iota. The test of humanity remains from generation to generation. One, two, three. There's a mic coming to you. Thank you. Okay. So um, you've taught us to some tools to handle our own anger, which is to recognize when it's coming, then to use uh, reframing with empathy and emuna and bitachon. Now, what about the other part of the talk, which is how do you handle other people's anger? Do you use the same tools? Yes, of course. I remember one of the things that the, uh, the Rebbe taught me in a yechidus I had with the Rebbe, a private audience. I had several, my wife and I had several private audiences with the Rebbe. And at one particular instance, um, I was uh, considering taking a senior position in a certain town. And uh, my wife, who's sitting right there, so I'm saying it in front of her, um, pipes up and says to the Rebbe, but he doesn't know enough for that position, which made me feel really great in front of the Rebbe, one's wife telling he's not good enough. So the Rebbe looked at her and smiled and asked her, but does he know Aleph? She said, yeah, he knows Aleph. That's enough. He can teach. The point being, by your practice, by your personal behavior, you automatically become the best teacher to the other. There's, there is no better teacher than example. In other words, if you are being provoked and the other person is angry in his or her provocation, observing the way that you respond is going to leave such an impression. Now, it doesn't mean that you are going to cure the other person of that tendency. Who says that it's left to you to do it or me to do it? It may be the 99th person who has the example that finally is able to influence that person. So yes, the tools are first to master yourself and then to share the Aleph and to teach the Aleph to the other person at the right time, not when they're uh, uh, in full flight of provocation and anger, but at a time that your wisdom uh, judges, this is a good time to sit the other person down and say, these are some of the things which I feel. I get angry sometimes too. You know what I do about it? And you begin that way. Number two. 
There was a lady over there, right there, yes. Thank you. So Rabbi, because our heads are our intellect, I wanna just make sure I have this correct. Because our intellect is in our heads, our intellect is above our hearts, which are our emotions, are our emotions. So because our heads are above, we have the ability to control our hearts, our emotions. You've got it correct, which is what distinguishes us from animals. And that's why animals, the way they are, and they're not putting down animals, animals are wonderful, but they are animals and we are humans. There is a difference. Animals, the heart and the head's on the same level, right? With a human being, the head is above the heart. We're upright, which is another indicator that we have the capacity of intellect, which animals do not have, which plants do not have, and stones don't have. And yet each of the four possess a soul. But the physiological body that each has, stone, plant, and animal is not as dexterous as the body of a human being. Therefore, our capacities of expression are that much more sophisticated. Thank you. I just wanted to share, when you said sin, it's self-inflicted nonsense. I learned that ego, that acronym is edging God out, and fear, forget everything and run. Good. Thank you for that. Thank you. See, we all learn from you. In the Hi. I wonder if you've heard people say, like I've heard them say, I'm not angry, I'm hurt. Yes. And are they just in denial of their anger? Um, they're a little bit ashamed of their anger, which is a good thing. It's good to know when a person has acted or expressed incorrectly, but we still love ourselves, so we need some self-justification. So the self-justification is, I'm hurt, which will explain why I got angry, so please don't think so badly of me because I was in a state of pain. So that's our way of at least ameliorating the fact that I got it wrong. Okay, so they're justifying. They're justifying, okay, yes. Okay, thank you. Any others? There's two over there. I will make these the last two because I've got the wind-up signal. Sorry? She will tell you. Yes? I know people who are angry at God because they have a child who was yes. born handicapped, the child yes. passed away, and they're very angry at God yes. because God had the power to keep the child alive. Absolutely. And the child died. Yeah. And how do you react to such a person? Like, how do you help them? How do you, how can you be sympathetic and at the same time, you know? You can be sympathetic, you sit with them, you cry with them, you don't understand. We don't understand. If we could understand why Hashem takes a neshama away at the particular point in time, we could give an answer. But we can't give an answer. So our duty is to connect as intimately and sympathetically as possible. There is no way that even an intellectual response will cause the pain to go away. So it's and the like lady an emotional, it's emotional connection yeah. to the person. Yeah. One last question in the back there. <laughs> 
Um, so basically, um, if you're in a situation or um, like with another person and you're in an argument or disagreement, a lot of times like you can be calm and all that, but sometimes the person, like you need to be kind of like answer back angry so that the person can kind of like realize, hey, like maybe I'm doing something wrong. Yep. But if you're always calm and just yes. chill, they're going to be like, yes. oh, like they can keep yelling at you or whatever. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So maybe in that situation, yeah. it's okay to like... So it's a quest for self-esteem that you're talking about. In other words, they're treading all over you and they're yelling at you and making you feel like a schmatter, right? And you want to yes. say to yourself, no, I'm not that. I'm going to be able to assert myself. Yeah. Correct. But what do you achieve at the end? At the end, you achieve disconnection and you still feel bad. So you've scored cheap points by being loud, but you haven't solved anything. Quite the contrary, you've created for yourself even further distance. How much more powerful is it if the other person sees you calm, cool, and being able to respond in an empathic manner, which allows them to feel some level of your understanding and your connection. Isn't that much more powerful? I guess Think it about could. It. Yeah. I okay. Mean... Remember, your self-esteem comes from inside you. You don't have to f yell it out to the world to see. You know if you have esteem in yourself. Remember what Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest anov, the most humble of all people. And the question is, Moshe Rabbeinu, an anov, humble? What do you mean? He was a strong, loud, dictatorial individual. He was a general. He was the president. He was the arbiter of all Jewish disputes. Can you think of a worse job than that? <laughs> this was a strong individual, and, and yet he's described as an, the greatest anov? So the Midrash comes to our rescue and says, if Moshe Rabbeinu were asked, hey Moshe, how come you're such a great person? He would have said, me, a great individual? If someone else were given the same gifts that God gave me, they would have done an even better job. Self-esteem means to know that God has given you individually gifts that no one else in the world possesses. That's the only reason why your neshama was Megalgal, reincarnated into this world. Without you in this world, this world would be inadequate. That's where your self-esteem comes from. The proof is you're alive and participating in the world. That's all you need to know. And then when you feel good in yourself because of that, because Hashem has gifted you, then you can respond to other people in a way which is befitting who you are. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.